Good morning. Great to have you here this morning. My name's Brent. I'm the pastor. Uh, good morning to those joining us online as well. It's great to have you with us today. We're in Mark 12, 13 to 17. So if you have your Bible there, you can turn to that passage. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen as well. And as you start flicking for that, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word through which you speak to us, through which you grow us. Lord, I am aware that um, I, have, I have a sense of, a, I have a weight in my spirit about the topic we're looking at today, the concepts we're looking at, but God, my prayer is that we would glorify you as we seek to balance truth and grace. God, we pray that you would be honoured and glorified, that we would be growing in you as a body and that we would be growing together with a sense of cohesion together as your body here at Outlook, God. Father, might we honour you, might we glorify you, might your name be known more widely through this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark 12, 13 to 17. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, whose, inscription, uh, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to, Caesar, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I think it's helpful for us at this point to know or to remember maybe that we're the context of what we're doing here. So uh, we're, we're sort of in a, a um, section of four different uh, stories, four different tales, where Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders of his day. And so last week, Jesus was addressed by all of the religious leaders together. Uh, there was the Pharisees, I'm just going to get the wording right here because it sw switches and swaps around a bit, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. And over the next three weeks, we're going to see each of these groups individually try and interact with Jesus on different things, trying to, basically trying to trap Jesus. And so they're called slightly different things in the passages. They call them the Pharisees and the Herodians we've got today, the Sadducees and the scribes. But they're basically the same people just with a few kind of ring-ins as well. Uh, and they're going to quiz Jesus from some specific angles. And so today we have the Pharisees along with this group called the Herodians. It's interesting that um, th this passage, the passage on um, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, it, like, it feels, and we know it has quite strong political connotations. That's kind of the implications within there. But it's interesting that the Pharisees and the Herodians are actually at different ends of the spectrum politically, socially, religiously. We know the Pharisees, we see them a fair bit. They're the really religious guys, uh, very keen religious people, and they were opposed to Rome. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Uh, but then we have the Herodians, and they're like non-religious Jews who were, um, who were in favour of the Roman occupation. And so they're like totally different ends of the spectrum, regardless of how you look at it. Uh, but today they come together around a shared interest, which is to attack Jesus. Uh, and so they come to Jesus with this question. 
Well, up to, the, up to this point, the leaders, I think, have been, they've been quite honest about their attitudes. They've been coming to Jesus to test him, and they've come with a fairly hostile sort of, a, sort of a, um, approach. They've been trying to test Jesus, and that's been, that's been obvious to us even by reading their tone uh, of questioning. But this time they try something different. Obviously, the Pharisees and the Herodians thought that they might catch more flies with honey than they do with vinegar, and so they come in and they try and butter Jesus up a bit. Oh, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Like, we know that none of this is true. You know, we know that they're just putting this on for show. They don't really believe these things. They're just trying to butter Jesus up, maybe trying to um, manipulate Jesus into doing or saying something he shouldn't, or doing or saying something incriminating, rather. And Jesus knows this too. And so before answering their question, he, he says, what, like, why do you put me to the test? But despite their hypocrisy, it says that he answered their question. And so let's have a look at how things play out. Their question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, taxes are a red button issue even today if you talk about taxes. But that was even more the case in Jesus' day. Uh, you might know this, you might not know this, but the Jews were, um, were being oppressed by the Romans in this period. And the Romans were one of a string of nations over hundreds of years who had oppressed Israel. And one of the ways that um, the Romans kept uh, the Jews under oppression, under the thumb, was that through taxation. And so they would tax the Jews heavily and they would respond swiftly and violently to anyone who tried to question that. And so... Maybe, obviously, the Jews hated the Romans, like they were being oppressed by them. Uh, they had heavy taxes on them and threats of violence to them. Uh, and as such, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians sort of try and force Jesus into a bit of a no-win situation. Like, if Jesus had have said um, that we should pay taxes to Caesar, well, then the people, the Jewish people, would perhaps have rejected Jesus, or they would have certainly questioned why he would have said that. They hated the Romans, and they hated the taxation of the Romans, and so the Pharisees could have then charged Jesus uh, with treason. In fact, we know from our study of Mark that the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting a political Messiah. So they were expecting somebody to come in and sweep the Romans out of the way. That was their, their whole Messianic view, worldview, was that the Messiah would come in, take over, uh, and push the Romans out of the way. And so even if they didn't outright reject Jesus... Certainly a yes answer to the question would have caused them to question Jesus' messiahship. Like they did not have any idea of a messiah who would say, yeah, you should definitely pay uh, taxes to Caesar. They want someone to overthrow the Romans, you know. Uh, and so um, they wouldn't have been a big fan of that at all. But on the other hand, if Jesus says they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, well then Rome is going to get mad, right? Like um, because the Herodians are here, they're going to be able to take that back to Rome uh, and, and tell Ro the Romans, as I said, they're going to have to respond swiftly and violently. Like if Jesus says no to taxation, then he represents um, the start of a potential uprising against Rome, uh, and they, they couldn't have that. And so their whole regime is based on violence and taxation. And so if not taxation, well, then violence is what you get. Uh, so the Pharisees, the Herodians figure they've got Jesus pinned. Either the Jews will reject him or the Romans will arrest him. They feel like they've got Jesus trapped, except we know Jesus is not trapped. Uh, it's a similar situation to what he uh, 
had them in last week, actually, but they, they chickened out and they said, well, we don't really know. You know, they didn't answer the question. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he asks for a coin. Give me a denarius, he says. And so we imagine they go rummaging through their robes and through their purses. Uh, they pull out this denarius uh, and hand it over to Jesus. And Jesus asks, whose likeness and inscription is this? And this is something that we can readily relate to, I think, in our day and age, because this is Roman currency we're talking about. I haven't got any here. Uh, it's imaginary Roman currency. It'd be good for kids' time. Um, but this is something we can relate to. You know, this, this is Roman currency. It had a picture of Caesar on it, just as we have coins with the picture of the Queen on them, right? Same sort of concept. Uh, and alongside this image was an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. And so this coin had Caesar's picture on it, and it had Caesar's name on it. Like, it's when you're arguing with your sibling, and they're like, that's mine. You're like, no, I don't see your name on it. Well, Caesar's ahead of the game here. He's put his name on this coin. It's engraved on there. And so Jesus says, whose picture is this? Whose name is on this coin? And they respond, Caesar's. And so Jesus says, well, if it's Caesar's coin, give it back to Caesar. Like the Jewish leaders, they had no problem using the Roman currency. That's obvious. Uh, and so Jesus is basically saying, well, if you're going to use the money, so you should pay the taxes. That sounds fair. You know, it's clever, actually, that Jesus does what he does um, because he asks the questioners to pull out the denarius. He says, give me a denarius, and they pull it out. Like, I don't know, Jesus might have had one on him. Certainly, I assume Judas might have had one on him in the, in the purse. But um, he asks the questions, uh, but he asks the questioners, rather, to produce the coin... And so it makes it really clear that they are using this money. Like if they were really angry about the idol of Caesar, they wouldn't carry little idols of Caesar around in their pocket. But they are doing that because they don't really care at all about that. All they're wanting to do is trap Jesus. So he responds by saying, well, let Caesar have his little coin. Give him his trinket. Who cares? You know, it's, it's worthless. It doesn't matter. But of course, he says more than that. He uses this really well-known phrase, a phrase we all know very well, probably. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. You might have to give back to Caesar the thing that has his image and his name on it. You might have to give him coins. You might have to give him trinkets, worthless tools of trade. But you also owe God something. You also owe God something that bears his image and his name. And we know from Genesis 1.26, a pivotal passage of Scripture, that we are made in the image of God. We know that as children of God, we are the ones who bear his name. And so you might owe Caesar some money, but you owe God your entire selves. And that's really the point that Jesus is trying to push into here. He's doing what Jesus does so well. He's taking this superficial, stupid question and he's making a much deeper point. He's saying that the image of Caesar demonstrates his ownership of that coin. But what does God's image on you demonstrate? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but more importantly, live out God's holistic ownership of you. It's like Mark 12.30 will tell us when we get there. We are to love God with all our hearts and with all our minds and with all our souls and with all our strength, our entire selves. We are image bearers of God, and so we owe, we owe God nothing short of our entire lives, our full devotion, as we say here at Outlook. 
And so give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give him his coins. Give him his worthless idol. But also give to God what is God's, your whole self. Now, there's obviously a, a bunch of lessons in here for us, isn't there? But uh, there's a few that I want to draw out. Something, there's something of a truism in, in uh, Christian circles. We say that we are in the world, but not of the world. It's a phrase we use quite often. Uh, I don't know that we live it out all that well, but we, we use it all the time. You know, we know Philippians 3.20 and places like that tell us that our true citizenship is in heaven. It's actually in heaven. So we don't belong to this world. We belong to God. And so, therefore, we belong to his kingdom. But so often when we speak of being in the world but not of the world, we use this tone as if to say, oh, alas, we must be part of the dirty, horrible world, you know. Um, but don't worry, our main mission here is to, not, is to kind of firstly not become part of the world and then also to just wait anxiously for the next world. You know, like, it's like when, don't touch anything. You know, when, whenever I take Joshua to the toilets, public toilets, like, don't touch anything, you'll get dirty. It's like that. And it's not totally wrong, like, um, but there's a, there's a subtle tone there. It's not that subtle now that I've used that imagery, but um, that we need to be careful with. Cer certainly we are called uh, to be in but not of the world. Like Romans 12.2 is a quintessential passage in this regard. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As believers, we are not to conform to the world around us, the sinful ways of the world. Rather, we are to be transformed uh, by the Spirit's work in the world, renewing us, renewing our minds to align with the mind of God, essentially. But it doesn't mean that we have to be, like, separatist about it. Like, the issue with the tone in that sentence is that it's all about escaping. It's all about getting away from, from the horrible world, you know, getting separation from it, trying to protect ourselves uh, and protect our purity by avoiding it. But passages like John 17... 14 to 19 make it clear that that's not what Jesus means for us to do it says I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one they are not of the world just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so there is this sense where Jesus prays for our protection from the evil one. But specifically, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why does he say that? Well, because of what he says in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so we are sent and sanctified into the world with a mission. Jesus has sent us into the world. And the only way that we can achieve our mission, which I'm sure that many of us know is uh, the mission of the, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. The only way that we can do that is to engage with the world. Like we are not to be separate from the world. We're supposed to be salt and light into the world. We are asked to press in to the broken hurting world and to do the work of redemption in the name of Jesus uh, with those around us. And so, for example, when the Psychic Expo was here and we were upstairs a few months back, there were, there were two types of people. 
Like, there were the people who were super keen and excited about it. Like, they were like, this is awesome that God has given us this opportunity to pray uh, and to witness to this group of people who are obviously spiritually seeking. And then there was the group of people who were mostly just worried that, uh, that they might infect us, like that they might uh, somehow damage us. You know, so, like, we, we were blessed. I didn't, this was, this was quite amazing. There was people pray, praying for us all over the place. People were coming up to me all the time and saying, oh, we've been praying for you guys with the Psychic Expo downstairs. And some people were praying that we would represent God well in the world. Like they were praying that we would represent God well to this group of spiritual seekers, while other people were pretty much just praying that we would be protected from them. Now we need both these things for sure, right? Like we do need protection from evil. Jesus does pray that the Father would keep us from the evil one. But not, but not by avoiding the messiness of the world. Not like, in fact, Jesus prays that we would not be taken out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one. Like in the end, we, we have to remember, I think, that we worship the Lord Almighty. Like the spirit that is within us is greater than the spirit that is in the world. Uh, and, and our God has overcome this world by his death and his resurrection on the cross. We don't have to fear the spirits of the world because we have a greater, more powerful, totally righteous spirit within us who protects us. And so we are free to be around the evil of the world because we are protected by the righteous spirit of the creator of the world. And so our response uh, is one of pressing in and of engaging with the world, not running away from it, not hiding away from it. Uh, and we, we have a prime opportunity, I think, while we're here at Rumours, uh, to show that we are not afraid of the spirits of this world. We are sent to love with the love of Christ, to shine his light into dark places and to share his gospel with those who are spiritually seeking and so I think that's one lesson we learn here as uh, kingdom citizens in an earthly kingdom of Caesar so to speak is that we should press in and engage we should literally be or not we should actually be in the world but not of the world don't hide press in knowing that Christ has our back but also we learn from this passage that there are limits to this like, we are supposed to engage with the world, but clearly there are limits to what we owe the government as citizens of another kingdom. And so, for starters, I think just like the Pharisees, we still use the idol-laden coin, right? Like, we're still using the money of the government, uh, usually through credit card, not coins necessarily, but... Uh, we still use the money and, and the benefits. And so whether that's using money to purchase goods or using the roads or using the sewer system or whatever that the government uh, maintains, we are still duty-bound, I think, required to pay taxes to the government. Like that's one that is just, it is there. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Money, taxes. These things are unimportant in the whole scheme of things. Uh, so let the government have their little trinkets. Because in the end, we owe God much more than money. We owe God a lot more than dollars and cents. We owe God our entire selves. And so this means, I think, that we then have to be aware of where we draw the line as to what we owe the government and what we owe God. And th there are two equal um, 
challenges associated with this, I think. Firstly, maybe, perhaps obviously, there is a point where we have to stand up to the government and refuse to give them our allegiance over God. Like, we owe Caesar, the government, something, but not everything. And so where do we, where do we draw that line? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, and it's one that I, I'm not totally sure can be answered from the front uh, like this. You, you know, the elephant in the room is obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Like, uh, how is it that we interact with a democratic government uh, who is exercising power that re really they would not have been able to exercise a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago even, you know? Like, how, how do we interact with a government around a vaccine that's been developed quickly and that is distrusted by some people? How do we do that? These are live questions for us as the church. And they're questions that I, I get asked about, frankly, pretty much every week. Now, I have to say, when I was writing this message, uh, I tussled with what and how much to say here in this way. Like, under Christ, I have the responsibility uh, of leading this church alongside the rest of our board. Uh, and so that means that the way that I view these things, the way that the board views these things has an impact. And so I know some people will want me to stand up and say something strong and clear on this, but I'm not going to. Like, here's the thing, that none of these issues are clear-cut. Uh, and whichever side of an argument you fall onto, like, you have to remember that we have other people in our church, other people in our brethren, you know, our brothers and sisters, who will fall on the opposite side. Well, it's just the way it is. And, and that's, on, that's just the way it always is uh, when, we, when we're talking about social or political things. We always have people on both sides of all debates. I used to, um, when I was at, I don't know if I should share this, anyway... When I was at Baptist World Aid, um, there was a pastor that was particularly angry, uh, and I used to always try and remind him, yeah, you've got people in your church who believe the opposite to that, you know, just to stir him up. Uh, he's like, no, we don't. Oh, he'd say, oh, yeah, we do. But you could see he was like, oh, do we? Anyway. Like, in the end, um, I, I thought about this, right? And I thought about um, if, I, if I got up and made a strong statement, it, to be quite honest, I would only be doing that to appease one camp or the other camp. Like, it, it wouldn't be authentic, it would be a political move on my part uh, to just get up and, and appease somebody, whoever I decided to appease, because in the end, these issues are complex issues. The COVID situation, the lockdown situation, the vaccine situation, these are ever-changing things. And furthermore, these are not things, these are not situations that I believe Scripture speaks clearly on. And I know that there are people who will disagree with me on that, and that's fine. But I think all we can say from Scripture uh, is that there may come a time where we have to stand up against the government, against Caesar, and say no. And perhaps that time will come during the COVID pandemic. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. And so because of the ever-changing nature of these situations, I, I can't make that clear, strong stance today. In the end, I do think, as leaders of the church, we need to be thoughtful and be thinking beforehand 
about where we're going to draw that line. Like, I don't think it's good wisdom to just make it up as you go along. I think we have to think about where we'll draw the line, and certainly I have done that. I trust that the rest of the board has done that too. They're very trustworthy people. But it's not, it's not straightforward enough for me to just get up and say, here is where I draw the line. Not, not in any sort of authentic way. And so I've thought about it, um, but, but um, yeah, I've decided not to share it from here. Um, and in our church, it's probably worth flagging, in our church, whether we like it or not, that's kind of the way it works here, is that uh, the, our sense of our style of governance is that we elect the board and then we trust them to make the decisions of the church. That's how we run the church. Uh, and so you have to be willing to trust the leaders that you elect. And as a side note, I know of churches who have to call a whole church meeting every time they have to make a decision on one of these things. Uh, and they're pretty much doing the same thing as us. So that uh, is helpful. But also they're doing it with a lot less trust in their leaders and they're doing it with a lot more angst for everyone involved. Like if you've ever been to one of those meetings, people argue about biscuits and curtains. Imagine how the meeting goes about COVID and vaccines, you know. Like, I, I, try, I trust that you are hearing me well here. Like, I know it's really difficult to adequately communicate these things from the front, uh, but I trust we're hearing one another well. And so the passage does speak to the COVID situation in the sense that perhaps we will need to draw the line uh, and say no to Caesar at some point. That might happen. But I've got to say, I think the passage says something much more pressing and much uh, more clear to us in this season. It's probably something we don't all want to hear, in all honesty, I don't, I don't think we are representing God well as the church universal. I'm speaking in the, in the whole sense, not just this church, but the church. Like the world around us is becoming more and more politically uh, and ideologically divided, right? And as the church, we are sometimes getting sucked into that just as much as everybody else. Like, if, you know, honestly, Satan is having a field day by when he starts to divide the saints of God over things that, frankly, God has not called us to divide over. And I think, as the church, everyone, I think we are in real danger of crossing that line and of giving way too much of our attention to Caesar. Like, the Church of Christ is supposed to be a group of vastly different people with vastly different views in all kinds of areas who agree together about the one most important thing. We agree together that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and through him and only him we can have eternal life. That's what we agree on. We are supposed to get along, not because we're all the same politically or socially or ideologically, but because we are all children of God. We are all image bearers. We all bear the likeness and the inscription of God through the gospel of Christ. And yet there's such division in the church at the moment. And why? Well, because of things like vaccination or lockdown or mask policy or uh, whether COVID is the worst thing that's ever happened or whether it doesn't exist and it's a hoax. You know, like these, but in the end, folks, these things are things of Caesar and they're not the gospel. Like, none of these things, none of these are things that we should divide over. All of them are things that should come second to the gospel of Christ and to the unity that we share in Him. We owe the government something 
but we do not owe the government the right, the power to divide the church. People quiz me all the time on uh, how it is that we can let the government control the church. How, do we, how does that interact? And this is a Baptist church, and so we have a thing called uh, separation of church and state. Uh, if you don't know what that means, that's understandable. I don't think I knew what that meant until maybe my third year of Bible college. I just nodded along. Oh, yeah, that thing. And so if you're interested, come and see me. Uh, we can have a chat. But like one of the, one of the, but if, like in all honesty, one of the ways that I think that the church is being influenced at the moment is that we are being divided politically and ideologically, and that's the work of Satan. Like the church should not divide on political lines because we have a greater, deeper unity that says we must learn to engage in robust dialogue with one another in love and without separating on grounds that God has never called us to separate on. Like, hear me well, there is room for robust discussion, loving discussion. I'm not saying we sweep these things under the rug. These are important things. But what I am saying is that we, we owe the government something, but we don't owe the government our total allegiance. We owe God our total allegiance and God has called us to be unified. He's called us to be one, just as Christ and the Father are one, as John 17 paints for us. We owe the government something, but not everything. Whereas we owe God everything. Our whole lives, our whole selves, our full devotion, and we owe God our unity. And so we can't, we can't let Satan tear the seamless robe of Christ over government policies that God has, called, has not called us to divide over. God has called us to be unified. And so, like, in the end, let's let... We can have those conversations, but let's let first things be first things. And let's show the world around us that the God that we worship is greater than the political and social lines that society is currently trying to force us to draw. Let's, let's not spend more time arguing about politics than we do about sharing the gospel and supporting one another. Like, these are important things, but they're not the gospel. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, it's, it's, um, we, we give you thanks that you draw us together as your body and we thank you for our family here at Outlook and that we are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and we love one another. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder today that we are to love one another even in our differences, maybe especially in our differences. God, we pray that you would be working in our hearts and in our minds, drawing us closer together. God, might our discussions, might our interactions with one another, might they be interactions that further solidify our unity, that draw us closer together, not, Lord, might they not divide us? We pray that you would be working in our hearts, that we would be one, just as Christ and the Father are one. God, you tell us that it is through 
our love for one another, through our unified uh, love for one another, that the world will know that we are your disciples, God, and we pray they would. We pray that you would be doing a powerful thing as you unify your body, as you show the world around us, God, that you are greater than ideological, political, social lines. Your gospel message supersedes all of that, God, and we pray that you would help us to have a focused mind and heart. Lord, might we spend more time on your gospel and loving and caring and supporting one another than we do on uh, arguing with one another, maybe tearing one another apart, whatever the situation, God. And I pray, I'm praying for the church universal, Lord. It's not, I'm not saying it's our church, God. I'm saying it's the church. You know that. I pray you would unify the church. And might you unify us here at Outlook as well, we pray. By your spirit and your name. Amen.